0: Welcome back to Pinpoint History everyone, Episode 30, The Empire Strikes Back. When we were last together, Alexander's army had begun consolidating the gains in Anatolia, with Alexander and Parmenian engaging in similar but independent actions to conquer the respective areas. We gotta take a moment and see Alexander outside the scope of the war with his portrait being drafted by Apelles. Then, we ended the episode with a supposed attempt on killing Alexander's life orchestrated by Alexander of Lincestis. To reorient ourselves for the upcoming narrative, it is now spring 333 BC. In 334, after the siege of Halicarnassus had progressed a solid amount, Alexander and Parmenians split the army to conduct the conquest of Anatolia. Now, After they spent the autumn and winter months consolidating Anatolia, the two halves of the army decided to link back up. It was now May of 333 BC, with the split halves of the army now reunited and the troops that had gone back home on sabbatical to their wives in Macedonia to create the new generation of soldiers had returned as well. These soldiers added up to about 3,000 infantry, 300 cavalry from Macedonia, as well as an additional 350 more cavalry from Thessaly and Elis, totaling another 650 altogether. The army, now reunited and replenished with reinforcements, set forward to continue their conquest. We come to another moment known about Alexander, if not directly attributed to him, but then a vague sense of the story known by the population today. That moment is the Gordian knot. The myth of the Gordian Knot tells a tale of a knot so tricky that even the most experienced of Boy Scouts find it beyond their ability to untangle. The person capable of untangling such a knot would become the master of all Asia. Coincidentally, Alexander was also aiming for all of Asia, and more, so he went to see the knot himself. We have two versions of the story, the less popular version being Alexander took a good look at the knot. Seeing that the knot was tied to a wagon owned by the king of Phrygia, Gordium, Alexander saw the pin on the wagon and pulled it and slid the yoke out, similar to how Captain America pulled the pin out of the flag mast to get the flag in the first Captain America movie. The other version, much more famous, is in which Alexander pulls his sword out and cuts through the knot. This bold, decisive action feels like something Alexander would do. Either way, the young king, now 23, continued his conquest. Everything in his strategy had stayed the same since the winter months. He accepted local submission, fighting quick battles, and not letting himself get bogged down in meaningless skirmishes. The army had now moved into the region of Cappadocia, gaining submission and appointing a local as satrap of the area. Alexander was now pushing into Cilicia, in the southeast of modern Turkey. Through the Cilician gates lay the path towards Syria, leaving Anatolia behind and moving deeper into the Persian Empire. Deep in the empire's heartland, news of Alexander's victory at the Granicus and his swallowing up of Anatolia reached Darius III. The king of kings had not been idle. First. Darius had appointed Memnon of Rhodes to head a fleet and tasked him with a counter offensive against the Macedonians. Despite appointing Memnon as fleet commander, it seems he was not entirely trusted, and Memnon's family was summoned to the court of Darius as, quotation mark, respected guests, quotation mark. Now, I'm sure some of you are wondering wasn't Memnon stuck in the city of Halicarnassus as Alexander sieged the city? And the answer is yes. Firstly, the mainly mercenary contingent Alexander left behind had finally taken the city. Secondly, Memnon and the governor, Orontobates, had managed to escape, knowing that the siege would be successful. Back to the narrative at hand, Memnon began his counter-offensive quite successfully. With Alexander's fleet back in Greece, Memnon was strategically in charge of the sea. Memnon ravaged Alexander's allies in the Aegean, taking the islands of Chios, Lesbos, and Mytilene. Though, disaster struck the Persians, and while taking Mytilene, Memnon became sick and died shortly thereafter. It's pretty anticlimactic, but dying of illness in war was just as common as being mortally wounded or outright killed. Memnon's nephew took over command and by all accounts acquitted himself well. However, if we zoom out to look at this counter-offensive strategically, the Persian navy could not do much more than what it was currently doing. Yes, they could threaten Alexander's communication lines back to Macedonia, but the more critical crippling of the supply line was no longer relevant. Anatolia now lay in Alexander's grasp, and more meaningfully, the supplies and wealth of the land which was more than enough to supply Alexander's war. The Persians didn't have enough men to strike Macedonia or any of the Greek allies. Persia also needed partners in Greece, but he would find none. Even Demosthenes, while preying on Alexander's downfall, did not counsel allying themselves with Persia. Alexander had disbanded most of his fleet, but the Athenian soldiers crewed the ships he did keep. They could quickly become hostages if Athens stepped out of line. And this was true for the majority of the Greek city-states as well. Many contingents of these Greek city-states now fought in Alexander's army. Athens was sensitive to this concept and sent a delegation to Alexander asking if the prisoners of Athenian origins, now working in the mines in Macedonia, would be set free. A request, Alexander denied. The only Greek city-state willing to work with Persia was Sparta, which, despite its history with the Persians, took their support whenever necessary, first to defeat Athens in the Peloponnesian War, now against the Macedonians. Still, it would take time for Sparta to commit any decisive action. The second thing Darius also initiated was raising levies for a land army to face off against the Macedonians. Harassing Alexander's communication lines and attacking his allies in the Aegean was all well and good. Still, the Persians knew it would take a decisive battle against the Macedonians for them to withdraw from the empire. Sources claim that Darius raised an army of 600,000 men, and Darius still had other territories he had not raised levies from. 600,000 is a massive inflation of soldiers. And while Darius would comfortably outnumber Alexander at their coming engagement, it was not to this degree. We know that this army was a much more potent threat that Alexander had faced at the Granicus and that the Persians would utilize their most significant asset, cavalry. Darius moved his army towards the Macedonians, a considerable distance away. Darius mustered his army at Babylon, and Alexander was still in Anatolia. They were still 700 miles from each other. The clock was now ticking, and eventually the two monarchs would come face to face, their armies facing one another in a slugfest. At the court of Darius was an Athenian exile named Carademus, who fled to Persia after the destruction of Thebes. Like Memnon, Charidemus advocated Darius not engage with the Macedonians, but send a small detachment of 100,000 out of the 600,000. Included in that 100,000 was 30,000 hoplites. Charidemus also suggested he should be the one to lead this force against the Macedonians. However, just look at the war council at Zeleia with the Persian commanders in Memnon. It was just too politically damaging not to fight the Macedonians. Darius had gathered a large army and the intended use was to crush the Macedonians. Sure, the army of Alexander was smaller, more refined, and simply of a higher quality, but more significant numbers just have a quality all their own. Then, Charidemus committed his final mistake. While politicians in Athens were used to the vitriolic speech and abuse hurled their way, it was not the same in the court of Persia. Charidemus ended up insulting Persian honor by questioning their courage and manhood. And for this, Darius had him executed. Our sources claim that Ceridemus' final words were that Darius would bear witness to the destruction of his kingdom. This particular source is from Diodorus Siculus, writing in the first century BC, writing his historical book essentially 300 years later. The final words of Caridemus may actually be true, or added in later by historians, looking backwards and seeing Alexander's victories as inevitable. This is why it's so crucial to be critical of the sources we're reading and not take every single thing at face value. Personally, I'm trying to find the right balance between telling the exciting story of Alexander and naturally. I'm leaning into some of the more fanciful stories we have while also trying to keep it pretty grounded historically. I'm going for a mix of Homer and dry academic, but mainly Homer. The Persian counterstroke now addressed, we can return to the Macedonians and the lead-up to the eventual showdown between Alexander and Darius. The inner plateau of Anatolia is harsh with cold winters and hot summers. Cilicia, on the other hand, was a pocket of fertile land with a more Mediterranean climate. As you push deeper into Cilicia, you reach what is called the Cilician Gates, a narrow strip of land with mountains all around. The path becomes so narrow that Alexander's marching army was forced to march through with much thinner lines, three men abreast of each other. Ahead, Alexander could see Persian forces and ordered them to slow the march and dig into camp. The campsite was not just any old campsite, but the famous campsite known as the Camp of Cyrus, named after the usurper Cyrus the Younger, and importantly, Xenophon and the 10,000 had camped here as well. Alexander, ever the lover of history, had probably intended to camp here feeling he was in the presence of the greats before him. Alexander's halt and the formation of a camp was a ruse intended to fool the Persian forces ahead of him. Under cover of darkness, Alexander and his preferred strike force of Hypaspas, Agrianians, and archers attacked the Persians. The Persians became aware of the assault before it hit them and decided to retreat. The culmination of Alexander's growing reputation and the fact that no Persian reinforcements were coming led them to make a strategic withdrawal. The governor of Tarsus fled once he heard of Alexander's impending arrival, prepared to flee, and stripped the city of its wealth before he arrived. Alexander moved so quickly that the governor only had time to run away. Passing by Tarsus, The Macedonians encountered the Hidnus River, the same river, Anthony Goldworthy points out, as the one Cleopatra sailed her royal barge down when meeting Mark Antony in 41 BC, 292 years later. The famous river was exceptionally clear and very cold, and Alexander called for a halt and decided to take a dip in the river. But almost immediately, Alexander began having issues. He came down with cramps, which, while swimming, can be very dangerous. Alexander's retainers pulled him out of the water, and by the time he was on dry land, a severe fever had stricken the king. We're not sure what happened or why, but it became clear that Alexander was close to dying. One of Alexander's best friends, Harpalus, was so worried that he uses his as senior treasurer to take a decent amount of money and flee. This seemed to reflect the mood at the Macedonian camp. Alexander was dying, it seemed, and the army was a long way from home. If you've been listening since episode one of my podcast, you'll recall the Romans had fallen prey to the exact situation when Emperor Julian died of his wounds deep in Edinburgh territory. All royal physicians refused to treat Alexander, worried they would be found guilty if the king died. All of the physicians, save one, a man named Philip. Philip had been Alexander's physician since he was a child, and Philip would be damned if he let the king he had known since boyhood die on his watch. Philip conferred with the king and decided on his treatment plan. They would purge the king. As is common in Greek retellings, and probably where Shakespeare gained some of his early influences, we have a dramatic moment where Parmenion sends an urgent message to Alexander, warning him that Philip was working with Darius. To add more drama to the tale, the letter arrives just as Alexander is about to drink the potion Philip prepared. Alexander read the letter and then passed the letter to Philip, and while Philip read the letter, Alexander drank the potion made by Philip. Alexander had known Philip since he was a boy. He trusted him. Though at first, it seemed the trust had been misguided, as Alexander became even more ill. It's said that Philip applied poultices to the king to help him recover, and eventually, Alexander did recover, much to the army and, I'm sure, Philip's relief. Alexander spent a month battling his illness in camp. The winding summer months had now led to fall, and at the end of September 333, Alexander felt recovered enough to continue. The Macedonians pushed through Cilicia, taking control of the region and taking the cities of Soli and Malus. However, the former was forced to pay 200 talents due to their Persian sympathies. They also saw the ancient monument of an Assyrian king close to the city of Ancheolus, claiming that he built the city of Tarsus and Ancheolus in a single day, and that those that passed by should eat, drink, and make love, because they would never be as successful as he was. The crumbling ruins and the boastful words of the monument remind me of the poem, Ozymandias, written by Percy Shelley, the husband of Mary Shelley, Who wrote Frankenstein when she was 19 years old, which is the real flex here? The poem Ozymandias is supposed to illustrate how time truly has the last word, and that all of our boastful words and creations may outlive us, but not forever. And eventually, everything passes into the void of history, consumed and forgotten. The final words of the poem being Look on me, works. Ye mighty in despair. Like in the winter campaigns, Alexander marched his army around to scare the mountain tribes into submission to demonstrate there were perks to the whole allying yourself with me type of deal. After this show of force was completed, Alexander returned to the city of Sali, as it was hosting a festival. Additionally, Alexander made sacrifices to Asclepius the son of Apollo and the god of medicine and healing. It was here Alexander was made aware of Darius's impending arrival with his large army. In fact, this news had even spread to the Greek Miland, and I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that in Athens, Demosthenes was very excited by the news, excitedly telling all those around him that Alexander and his army would soon suffer a crushing defeat. Truly, the man was a born hater. The news of Dirac's army on the march didn't scare Alexander. He was ready to march forward and engage in a decisive battle with the King of Kings. The Macedonian army had traveled overland through Anatolia, into Cilicia, and now made their way into Syria. Hundreds of miles, countless skirmishes and battles along the way, and only now Fifteen months after Alexander's initial evasion, Alexander and Darius would come head to head. The entrance into Syria via Cilicia came down to three narrow passages. Parmenion had occupied these passes to avoid any issues with the march. With the knowledge that the Persians were on their way, Alexander discussed with his army officers whether they would let the Persians come to them, or if they would bring the fight to the Persians. The commanders of the army chose the bulls and aggressive strategy, which most likely was what Alexander wanted to hear. Alexander reunited the Parmenian and took the southern passage nearest the sea, keeping Alexander close to his ships and supplies. The army arrived at the city of Meandrius, but news arrived that the Persians were also in the area. Only 20 kilometers away. This news startled Alexander, who sent a ship with people Alexander trusted to confirm the news. The ship sailed north and confirmed it. The Persians really were that close. The Macedonians on the ship saw the Persian camp and immediately returned to Alexander, telling him the truth of the matter. The area they were currently in did not allow Darius the full advantage of his larger army. Initially, Darius waited in the city of Sochi in Syria, wanting to let the Macedonians come to him to utilize the plains of Syria and effectively use his cavalry. Alexander's illness had delayed the movement for over a month, and Darius did not know this and assumed that perhaps the Macedonians were scared. Darius needed to act, It was already the autumn months of 333 BC, and he could not keep an army this large together forever. He needed to fight, and he needed to fight now. Darius sent his baggage train and treasury to Damascus, moving forward to find his foe. While Alexander had gone through the southernmost passage, Darius had gone through the northern pass, not realizing where Alexander was until he had already made the passage. The Macedonians had left behind a depot of supplies and left their wounded and sick men behind. Darius had those who remained slaughtered and continued his march, looking for the Macedonians. By a simple fluke, twist of fate, or whatever you want to call it, Darius had now cut off Alexander. The young king had anticipated the Persians to come through another pass. The Persians were now north of the Macedonians, and they had no choice but to fight. Alexander gathered his top officers and regimental commanders and began hyping them up, telling them they had nothing to fear from the Persians. They had already beaten them once, and the terrain was suited to Macedonian formations rather than the Persians. The Macedonian top brass were now highly motivated and ready for a fight. After the meeting, Alexander ordered his men to rest and eat. The king then sent men scouting to make sure the Persians were not marching any closer. It seems with the armies so close to one another, Darius was content to entrench himself and allow the Macedonians to come to him. Alexander then marched his army closer to Darius before camping for the night. Tomorrow, the two forces would engage in battle. Rising with the dawn, Alexander and the army awoke and began their march to the plains where Darius had encamped. Alexander moved forwards to the camp, and eventually Darius realized the day was the decisive day. The king of kings had recalled all the Greek mercenaries for the battle, alleging to have been around thirty thousand men. It is assumed that Darius had double. If not triple the amount of soldiers Alexander had, the theoretical number of maximum size the Macedonians could have was forty-five thousand. Still, atrophy sets in immediately, with wounded and sick soldiers depleting the army's strength. And while I have no real basis for this number, I'm estimating a battle strength of thirty-eight thousand to forty thousand for the Macedonians, and between eighty thousand to 100,000 for the persians much of the persian army would have been infantry with the 30,000 greek mercenaries fighting for persia and another 30,000 close order persian infantry and at least 15 to 20,000 cavalry for the persians the macedonians marched down the coastal plain until they got closer to the persians as they got closer the plains began to widen enough The Macedonian army to deploy into formation. Alexander led from the front, deploying the infantry. The precision needed to deploy the army into formation was a testament to the skill and professionalization of the army. Adrian Goldsworthy talks about the deployment of the Macedonians. And as they marched, they kicked up all the dust around them, and so the Persians could not see the Greeks. All they could see was the sarissas of the pike phalanx gleaming the sunlight over the dust storm, coming closer and closer to them. From the Macedonian view, the battle looks like so. On the Macedonian left was the sea, and across from the Macedonian left was the bulk of the Persian cavalry. Then, moving right, was a unit of Persian infantry, and then further right were the Greek mercenaries. In the center was more Persian infantry and Darius, surrounded by elite cavalry and in his war chariot. The Macedonians would once again have to cross a river to engage with the enemy forces. Interestingly, we get some psychology on Darius' mindset for the upcoming battle. Darius was assuming a defensive posture. In his mind, he didn't need to win the battle. He could settle for a draw. A draw with heavy casualties on both sides still benefited the Persians and discredited Alexander. Personally, I think it's pretty soft. When you go to war, you go to win, especially when you have the home field advantages and the larger army. It doesn't scream confidence to your men, which... Alexander himself picked upon. Apparently, he had realized, in spirit, Darius was already a defeated man. The Macedonians arrayed themselves in their usual formations, the pike phalanx in the middle, each regiment led by capable commanders such as Craterus, Ptolemy, and no, not that Ptolemy, but a different one, and Perdiccas. We then have the Thessalian cavalry to the left, led by Parmenion, where the Ptolemy, we were just thinking of, was leading a small squadron of cavalry under Parmenion. Then, in this Macedonian center right, we have the Hypaspists, and then further right, we have the companion cavalry, and some light cavalry to the right of the pike phalanx. Interestingly, Alexander was not with his companion cavalry at the beginning of the battle. He led the infantry charge with the Hypaspists. The upcoming battle fought now between these two armies is known to us as the Battle of Issus. And so, without any further ado, let us begin. The battle began with the Persian cavalry on the right rushing forward to crush Parmenian's half. The Persians knew their infantry paled in comparison to the Macedonians, so they planned to rout the Macedonian cavalry and outflank the Macedonian center. Alexander led the infantry assault at first, with the Persian archers raining arrows atop the infantry. The infantry began to lose formation as they ran towards the enemy and crossed the river. The Persians did not let this opportunity escape and the Greek mercenaries began a counter-offensive as the Macedonian phalanx lost their cohesion. In the fighting, one of the regimental commanders, the less important Ptolemy, died in the fighting. After the infantry assault led by Alexander crossed the river and engaged the enemy, the king regrouped with his companion cavalry on the right side. It was clear to Alexander that any hope of victory lay here with the companion cavalry. Parmenian's left was buckling against the numerical superiority of the Persians, but they managed to hold on, if barely. The center was also a stalemate as the Macedonians reformed their line and engaged with the Persians. While they had the tactical superiority, the Persians had the sheer numbers. The battle would be determined by which cavalry could defeat their opponents and strike the flanks of the enemy center. This battle wasn't a strategic chess match, but resembled a straight-up boxing fight where the two boxers meet in the middle of the ring and punch it out. In the end, it was Alexander and his companion cavalry that broke the deadlock. They beat their enemy in front of them and swung around to strike the rear lines of the enemy center. The sudden shock of this attack enabled the Macedonian infantry to push forward. The Persian center was now being attacked at both ends. The decisive blow of the battle came when Alexander and the companion cavalry spotted Darius' chariot. Alexander led a renewed charge towards the king of kings. Darius looked around and saw his center collapsing and his left wing defeated and the Macedonian king charging towards him, hell-bent, to kill him. With this, Darius had begun the retreat from the battlefield. The right flank also began to retreat, leaving the beleaguered left wing of the Macedonians to capture their breath. Alexander ordered his cavalry to attack the retreating Persians, but the chase did not continue for long as the evening began to set in. The battle of Issus was a decisive victory for Alexander. Not enough to wound the Persian Empire mortally, but deep enough to cause serious harm. The resulting casualties ran high for both armies, with 7,000 for the Macedonians and 20,000 for the Persians. Many deaths came during the resulting retreat, and the future pharaoh Ptolemy in his memoirs were counts crossing over a gully of dead enemies at this battle. Still, it was a significant victory for the Macedonians, and Alexander had now faced off against the king of kings and won. The spoils of war were immense. As Darius had fled, he left his camp behind, and the Macedonians found great wealth and treasures there. Alexander took a bath that had been lugged for the king of kings, Apparently, Darius had brought his entire family along with him for the battle, and he had left them behind. His mother, wife, daughter, and infant son were now in the hands of Alexander. The king sent one of his aides to the Persian royal family, promising they would not be harmed. Then, the following day, Alexander went to see the royal women in person, and in a moment that highlights Alexander's personality for me, Really shines through. When Alexander met the royal women, Darius' mother, Cescambes, mistook Alexander's friend, Hephaestion, as the king. He was taller and dressed the same as the king. Alexander took this pretty well, and when Darius' mother realized her mistake, she was horribly embarrassed. But in what I consider a classic Alexander moment, he is alleged to have said not to worry, for Hephaestion is also an Alexander. Yeah. Darius' wife, Statira, would die a few months later, but there's no mention of foul play, which seems Statira died of natural causes. Parmenian raced ahead of the main army with a detachment of soldiers and reached the city of Damascus before the Persian forces reorganized claiming the Persian baggage train and the all-important treasury that Darius had left behind. We also get our first glimpse of Alexander engaging in a relationship. Darius summoned Memnon's family to the court to ensure his loyalty, so Memnon's daughter, Barsine was also in Damascus. Parmenian sent Barsine to Alexander, and the king took her as his mistress. This is highly unusual as Alexander typically turned down all offers of young men and women until now. Barcine had been in Macedonia with her father when she was young and the two likely knew each other. Barcine was also slightly older than Alexander. Perhaps Alexander had a crush on the woman from his younger days, though that's just speculation on my part. In time, Darius messaged Alexander directly which was a significant deal. Firstly, it was the first time the two had directly communicated, and secondly, it forced Darius to acknowledge Alexander. It seems Darius was offering to essentially legitimize Alexander's new holdings in Anatolia and Cilicia, offered an official alliance, and a ransom for his family's return. I always wonder here at this junction, what would have Philip done? Philip was a more practical man, but Darius's offer smells of weakness. Alexander didn't need Darius to legitimize his conquests. Alexander had done so by the sword. And Alexander didn't want a piece of territory. He wanted it all. And, like a shark smelling blood in the water, he continued to hunt his prey. Alexander turned down the offer. And reiterated the claim that the Persians were involved in the murder of his father and that by winning in battle, the gods approved of his territorial claims. Alexander ended it by saying he should now be addressed as Lord of Asia and that he would take excellent care of his new subjects, and Darius need not trouble himself with worry for them. Alexander told Darius they were not equals and that Darius should come to Alexander on his knees, begging, telling Darius, If you claim the kingship, stand your ground and fight for it, and do not flee, as I shall pursue you wherever you are. This was Alexander's declaration of intent, and while everyone knew what this invasion was, it was boldly stated here. Alexander basically told Darius, Fight me like a man, and if you run, I will find you. This has been a jam-packed episode, and with Alexander Victorious over Darius, I think we'll leave it here for now. As I'm sure you know, I have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history, and you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. I'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, let's get it.